part of the problem. The hyperbole has been ratcheted up to these absurd levels. Who in this country is denied their right to vote besides individuals who have lost their right to vote? <coughs> Those individuals who have had their uh, rights forfeited because of, let's say, a felony conviction. Who is being denied their right to vote? Well, somebody who can't find a voter ID, I suppose, would be the answer, right? If you can't get a voter ID, uh, then, then you're required to show voter ID. Well, then you're not able to vote. How many people does that actually impact? Any idea? I mean, most people can get a driver's license. We know where you can get a photo ID. Many states that require ID to vote do not charge for that ID. And unlike the Jim Crow era, you may have to navigate the bureaucracy. You may have to deal with some red tape. You may have to wait in line for a while. But you're not going to be told no. We're not going to give you an ID because of the color of your skin. They're not going to try to make you explain passages from the U.S. Constitution to ensure that uh, you have an understanding of the laws or give you a literacy test before uh, you're allowed to fill out the paperwork to get your ID. We've had some really racist voting laws in this country. We really have. And the laws that we have on the books today look nothing like those racist laws that were intended to prevent black Americans from voting. Primarily, by the way, in states controlled by Democrats. Uh, according to uh, Politico, Biden will say, quote, in no uncertain terms, that attempts to limit voting access in Republican-led states are, quote, the most significant threat today to the integrity of our elections and to the security of the right to vote for people of all races and backgrounds. The president will take aim at election changes that, quote, could allow partisans to throw out the votes of anyone for made-up reasons. And what uh, political rights appears to be a reference to Georgia's new law, where the state legislature now appoints the majority of the board of elections, and that board can replace local election officials. You know, the problem for Joe Biden with this is that, A, this is an issue that uh, primarily appeals to a fairly small portion of his Democratic base. Because even broad swaths of Democrats say, yeah, you should have to show some sort of ID so you know who you are. We know who you are. We know that you're not casting a fraudulent vote. Voter ID enjoys broad support among not only Republicans and independents, but Democrats as well. Because most Americans, regardless of their political party, do want to have confidence that the elections are honest and that the results are trustworthy. And we have heard complaints from both the right and the left in that regard over really going back to the 2000 election. But for Joe Biden, it's, it's only one party that's trying to restrict the right to vote and uh, destroy democracy, which I think is why this is going nowhere. All right, stick around. Tony Cast today. We've got much more coming up right after this. It's Tony Katz today talking about the uh, Democrats who have pivoted to elections because they are, I think, terribly concerned about uh, what's going to happen next November. And it has nothing to do with voter fraud or stolen elections. They're just concerned that they're going to lose their slim majority in the House and in the Senate. Uh, and that is going to put an end to even their fever dreams of uh, being able to get their legislative package through Congress. So and between now and next November, 
It's uh, full speed ahead in demonizing Republicans and uh, any attempt to ensure the integrity of our elections. Joe Biden going to be uh, talking in Philadelphia today, giving a, a big speech, although Politico notes that there's one part of uh, Biden's speech that uh, is not actually going to be given. There's something that's being left out of his uh, major address, and that is a call to repeal the filibuster. Politico says that while Biden's speech may not give activists nor a growing number of Democrats what they are desperately calling for, the endorsement of a carve-out for the legislative filibuster specifically for their signature voting rights bills, the president will lay out how Democrats plan to meet what his White House is calling the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War. By the way, think about all of our history since the Civil War and the threats to democracy. I mean, really, you want to talk about the biggest threat to democracy? And Biden's going to be talking about uh, the 2020 election and, uh, you know, Donald Trump's uh, uh, insistence that uh, election fraud uh, was to blame for uh, Biden getting into the White House. Go back to 1876. I don't even know if this is really taught in our nation's schools. But but the election of 1876 was, I, I believe, truly the biggest test of democracy that we've had since the Civil War. Uh, in 1876, Reconstruction had been taking place for about a decade. And the Democrats in the Deep South were doing everything that they could to try to prevent free blacks from voting. They were imposing their own restrictive laws in place. They were disarming uh, blacks who had shown up at the polls to try to protect free blacks who, who were casting their vote. And in the election of 1876, there were actually disputed election returns from three states, uh, two in the Deep South and in Oregon. And Democrats and Republicans both insisted that their party had won those three states. And until those three states actually had a certified election result, there weren't enough votes in the Electoral College to figure out who the next president was going to be. And this went to the House of Representatives, uh, where it deadlocked for uh, a number of ballots. And then ultimately, a, a backroom deal was made. And Samuel Tilden, the Democratic candidate for president, uh, gave up his, his chance to, uh, to get into the White House. Rutherford Hayes, uh, the Republican candidate, was declared the winner. And in exchange for the Democrats accepting the uh, Republican win, Republicans basically moved to end Reconstruction. They, they pulled the remaining federal troops out of the Deep South. They allowed Democrats to uh, impose their own voting restrictions. And, and I truly believe not only was that the biggest test of democracy, I believe that was one of the biggest failures of democracy that this country has seen. And I think that um, it was a mistake on, on both the part of uh, Democrats and Republicans, although Democrats got far more out of it than Republicans did. Republicans got the White House for four years. But Democrats were able to establish a, a Jim Crow regime that lasted for decades thereafter. Uh, what, 90 years, right? 1876 to, let's say, 1965, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You're basically looking at a 90-year period where Democrats uh, in the South were able to prevent many blacks from voting. Uh, the number of black members of Congress elected from the South uh, 
decline to zero very quickly. But I don't think Biden's really going to talk much about that today. And of course, uh, as, as tribal as our politics have become and as big as the problems that we are facing today might be, I, I truly do believe that they're nothing compared to uh, what this country has gone through in years past. But Biden, there's, there's no point for Joe Biden to give the American people a real history lesson. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to educate voters. He's trying to inflame the Democratic base. He is trying, he's given the marching orders to the press to declare all of these efforts uh, in Republican states, states like Texas, uh, to be steeped in racism as opposed to uh, what this, is, I believe, is, is really about. And that is about ensuring that when we go to the polls, that we feel comfortable and confident that, that our votes count. I mean, again, you know, this goes back to 2000, Bush versus Gore. And you had Democrats then proclaiming that the election had been stolen. We've had a generation of election results where one side or the other has complained that the results should not be believed. And it's happened at the federal level. It's happened at the state level. Certainly happened at the local level, too. And rather than, you know, see this as, okay, well, what can we do to make sure that people have confidence in the election process? Democrats said, well, what, what can we do to make it as easy as possible for anybody to vote, basically whatever they want, even if that allows for fraud? And of course, the more suspicious among us might say that uh, that fraud is one of the reasons why they want to change the uh, voting rules. Now, Greg Abbott, the uh, governor of Texas, he's fired back at these Democrat lawmakers who've fled the state. Uh, Monday afternoon, Abbott released a statement talking about some of the things that that aren't going to get voted on while Democrats are away. He said the Texas Democrats' decision to break a quorum of the Texas legislature and abandon the Texas state capitol inflicts harm on the very Texans who elected them to serve. As they fly across the country on cushy private planes, they leave undone issues that can help their districts in our state. Issues like property tax relief, funding to support sheriffs and law enforcement in high crime areas, funding for children in foster care, funding for retired teachers. Abbott says the Democrats must put aside partisan political games and get back to the job that they were elected to do. Their constituents must not be denied these important resources simply because their elected representative refused to show up for work. Abbott uh, has said that when these Democrats return to the state of Texas, they're, they're liable to face arrest because they are, in essence, fugitives from justice right now. Taking off rather than uh, doing their job because they know that they don't have the votes to prevent a bill from going through. Now, imagine, actually, you don't even have to imagine. When Republicans have uh, done similar things, in Oregon, for instance, the Democrats have basically a supermajority in the state legislature. And uh, it didn't happen this past legislative session, but year before last, Republicans walked out because that was the that was the only option they had to try to stop a bill from going forward. They walked out of the state house, And you didn't see the press 
laud these Republicans for their noble stand and with their backs against the wall, the Republican lawmakers in Oregon took the only step available to them. No! They were exoriated. They were demonized. These Republicans need to get back to work. They're abdicating their responsibility. They should be tossed out on their rears by the voters the next opportunity. I mean, honestly, exact same thing the Republicans are saying right now about the Democratic lawmakers in Texas. So either we really don't care what our lawmakers do, uh, or maybe more of us care about it when it's our own side. Personally, I don't like the uh, lawmakers leaving, even if that's the only opportunity or the only option that they have to cast a vote. I, I, in fact, in Oregon right now, there are Republicans who are ticked off that uh, the GOP did not involve or engage in that strategy this past session. There were a couple of gun control bills that passed out of the Oregon legislature, were signed by Kate Brown. And there are a couple of Republicans in Oregon who are actually facing recalls now, or at least recall efforts. I don't think they've been certified to uh, move forward yet, but they're gathering the signatures to try to recall a couple of these lawmakers because these lawmakers showed up and allowed for the Democrats to establish a quorum. Now, I, I, you know, my impression at the time was, you know, look, I mean, that, that was probably the, the, the right thing to do. But I might have to rethink my position now. If the Democrats are going to excuse their own lawmakers when they take off and head for the hills rather than cast a vote, then why shouldn't Republicans do the same thing? Uh, you know, I, I don't like these rules, but we're going to have one set of rules. And if, if it's okay for Democrats to do it, then it's okay for Republicans to do it. If it's not okay for Republicans to do it, then it shouldn't be okay for Democrats to do it. That should be something that, again, we all agree on as Americans, as voters, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum. But it's not. Because right now, the uh, Biden administration and the Democrats in Washington, D.C. want a separate set of rules depending on your party affiliation. And if you are a Democrat, you get to do whatever the heck you want. And if you're a Republican, <laughs> well, they don't want you to do anything at all. All right, we're going to take a, a quick time out, though. We do have much more to come, so stick around here on Tony Katz today. It's Tony Katz today. Tony is off on this uh, Tuesday, but my name is Cam Edwards. I'm sitting in for Tony and glad to be behind the microphone. Uh, the latest update, by the way, out of the state of Texas with these uh, Democrats, House members who have fled the state in a private chat, no less, uh, and have uh, landed in Washington, D.C., where they are hanging out with their uh, Democratic colleagues in Congress. Uh, now the uh, Texas state legislature, at least those who are around, uh, has voted 76 to 4 to authorize the legislature's sergeant-at-arms to bring these legislators back by arresting them, if necessary. Um, I, you know, this is, this is, I don't know that you're going to see the sergeant-at-arms board a, a plane to Washington, D.C. anytime soon. Um, however, this isn't the first time that Texas Democrats have actually tried to abdicate the responsibility by fleeing the state. Back in 2003, there was a fight over redistricting. And the Democrats, most of them went to uh, Oklahoma. Some of them went to New Mexico. Uh, Texas Republicans asked the attorney generals uh, of those two states if 
Texas troopers or the Texas Rangers could arrest those lawmakers without a warrant and bring them back to Texas. Both states said no. Uh, Republican lawmakers also asked at the time whether federal authorities could bring Democrats back, but the uh, FBI and the Justice Department said at the time that they had no justification for intervening. Uh, so you're, you're probably not likely to see the uh, sergeant at arms go to Washington, D.C. to try to uh, round up these, uh, uh, you know, loose Democrats and to put them on a plane back to Austin. But this is, I think, a uh, another stark reminder of the fact that what Democrats are doing here uh, really, you know, as they're as they're talking about threats to democracy, what are they doing? They're subverting democracy by not allowing a vote to be held, by denying a quorum to the legislature because they don't like what the outcome of that vote is going to be. Now, this special session in the state of Texas uh, was supposed to last, I believe, three weeks, early August. So it's possible that these uh, Texas Democrats stay away for for three weeks. I don't know, again, how they're going to get subsidized. I assume the National Party is going to take care of them. But there are legislative staffers who aren't going to get a paycheck because one of the issues that the legislature was supposed to bring up during the special session was funding for legislative positions and those staffers. Again, as uh, Governor Greg Abbott said, uh, retired teachers aren't going to get a check that uh, both Republicans and Democrats have agreed in theory that uh, these retired teachers deserve. There's property tax relief that's going to be left on the table. And and it's going to be, I think, increasingly difficult for these Texas Democrats to define what they're doing as a principled stand when you've got Democrats like Beto O'Rourke out there trying to raise money off of this. Yeah, Robert Francis Beto O'Rourke, I tweeted out, these Texas Democrats are the courage the country needs right now. They give us a fighting chance to pass the For the People Act and save our democracy. Please pitch in to make sure that they have the resources to stay in this fight as long as it takes. And there's a link to actblue.com so you can give your money to these Democrats so they can, you know, in case they need to take another private jet somewhere. In case they get bored with Washington, D.C. and they want to take a, a private jet to uh, California, maybe. Trying to give some, maybe, maybe Seattle. They can hang out. Uh, is the autonomous? No, the autonomous zone's not up there anymore. I guess they could go to uh, Minneapolis. There is still an autonomous zone around uh, George Floyd Square if they wanted to, uh, to hang out there. But again, th- this is so transparently not about policy. This is so transparently about politics itself. And I think not only is this going to have a uh, negative impact on Democrats in the state of Texas. In fact, I think it's I, I think it's really going to cripple the Democratic chances uh, in, in the midterms. But I think it's going to have an effect on uh, Democrats around the nation. And I don't think it's going to do much of anything to help them pass H.R. 1, because the biggest problem right now for Democrats is not Republicans when it comes to passing the, uh, the what, what's it called, the For the People Act. That's what they're billing it as. It, it's not Mitch McConnell who's the biggest roadblock or Tom Cotton. It's Joe Manchin. It's Kirsten Sinema. The, the pair of Democrats who have said, no, we're not interested in nuking the filibuster. Uh, Manchin has, you know, kind of hemmed and hawed about whether or not he would maybe uh, 
uh, allow for the filibuster to be removed in cases that deal with constitutional issues. But I don't think he's even going to come down on that position. Uh, Manchin seems pretty insistent that the filibuster should remain in place. And as long as that is the case, then the biggest roadblock to the Democrats' efforts to overhaul and federalize voting laws around the country is from within their own party. They can point the finger at Greg Abbott or Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or whoever, but the issue is within their own caucus. And that should tell you everything you need to know about just how extreme that bill is when they can't even get every Democrat to sign on. All right, hour one of Tony Cast today. It's in the history books, but hour two has yet to be written. So stick around. We'll be back with more Tony Cast today coming up right after this. It's Tony Katz today. Thank you for joining us on the program. Phone numbers to call 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. You do not have Tony today, though. You've got me instead, uh, Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at Bearing Arms, which focuses on Second Amendment news and issues. And we actually do have some breaking Second Amendment news this afternoon. This is uh, exciting stuff for those of you who care about the right to keep and bear arms. You know, the Supreme Court is going to hear in the fall a challenge to New York's laws regarding their right to carry or their privilege to carry, because that's how they see it in New York, right? You don't have a right to carry. You have to demonstrate some sort of special need uh, that places you above the average citizen before you can obtain a carry license in New York State. But there are a number of other issues that are percolating at the appellate court level. Uh, in the Ninth Circuit, for example, you've got a, uh, a ban on so-called large-capacity magazines that's in the uh, Ninth Circuit. Oral arguments were just held there uh, in an en banc review of California's law. Uh, the Fourth Circuit has been uh, taking a look at whether or not the Second Amendment actually applies to those Americans under the age of 21. You know, if you go to a gun shop and you're, let's say, 20 years old, you can buy a shotgun, you can buy a rifle, but you can't buy a handgun because under federal law, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds are not allowed to purchase handguns. They're not forbidden from possessing them, but they are forbidden under federal law from buying a handgun at retail. So there's a case that's been uh, percolating around the, uh, the court system for a couple of years. It's called Hertzfeld versus BATFE. And a trial judge uh, in the uh, Western District of Virginia declared that the federal law is fine. That, that yes, Second Amendment rights are implicated, but because 18, 19, 20 year olds could still purchase a shotgun or a rifle, uh, that the federal law did not amount to a deprivation or an unconstitutional infringement uh, on their right to keep and bear arms. Well, the Fourth Circuit has now reversed that decision. In a 2 1 opinion, Judge Julian Richardson, who was appointed, by the way, to the Fourth Circuit by President Trump in 2018, found that the federal law does, in fact, violate the constitutional rights of young Americans. I want to quote here from his summary of the decision. We're not going to wade into the legal weeds, I promise you. Judge Richardson writes, when do constitutional rights vest? At 18 or 21? 16 or 25? Why not 13 or 33? In the law, a line must sometimes be drawn 
but there must be a reason why constitutional rights cannot be enjoyed until a certain age. Our nation's most cherished constitutional rights vest no later than 18, and the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms is no different, he says. He says that the plaintiffs in this case sought an injunction and a declaratory judgment that several federal laws and regulations that prevent federally licensed gun dealers from selling handguns to any 18, 19, or 20-year-old violate the Second Amendment. Judge Richardson writes, We first find that 18-year-olds possess Second Amendment rights. They enjoy almost every other constitutional right, and they were required at the time of the founding to serve in the militia and furnish their own weapons. We then ask, as our precedent requires, whether the government has met its burden to justify its infringement of those rights under the appropriate level of scrutiny. To justify this restriction, Richardson says, Congress used disproportionate crime rates to craft over-inclusive laws that restrict the rights of overwhelmingly law-abiding citizens. And in doing so, Congress focused on purchases from licensed dealers without establishing those dealers as the source of the guns that 18 to 20 year olds use to commit crimes. So we hold that the challenged federal laws and regulations are unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Despite the weighty interest in reducing crime and violence, we refuse to relegate either the Second Amendment or 18 to 20 year olds to a second class status. That's huge. Now, it is quite possible that uh, gun control activists uh, and the federal government will ask for an en banc review of this decision. That would mean that the entirety of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals would review this case as sort of a, uh, an intermediate step uh, before appealing this directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't know what the uh, full Fourth Circuit might do with this case. But this is another issue that is quickly going to be on the Supreme Court's radar. Uh, not only do we have this case out of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, but you've got a number of other cases, including a case down in Florida, where just last week, a federal judge upheld that state's ban on gun sales to 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, saying that he had a lot of questions about the law. But based on existing 11th Circuit precedent, he had no other choice but to declare Florida's law valid. Well, now you've got uh, a, a, a differing opinion here uh, from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, from what the 11th Circuit has said. So that means that there's a split now in the appellate courts, which increases the likelihood of the Supreme Court taking one of these cases. And I hope that they do. Because I know that, you know, look, let's go back to something that Judge Richardson said. We've been talking about violent crime. Democrats are obviously uh, obsessed with trying to uh, turn around their polling numbers on the issue of violent crime. And one of the ways that they've tried to do it is by uh, going after the quote unquote rogue gun dealers, right? Who are supposedly arming criminals. Well, as the Fourth Circuit said, Congress never actually established that young criminals, 18, 19, and 20 years of age, were getting their guns through legal gun sales. In fact, they, they, they didn't even really try to argue that at all. They just said, we have to make it as hard as possible for 18, 19, 20-year-olds to obtain a firearm, so we want to make it illegal for them to obtain a handgun by going to a gun store. And as Judge Richardson wrote, Congress used disproportionate crime rates to craft these over-inclusive laws restricting the rights of overwhelmingly law-abiding citizens. 
if you look at who commits violent crime in this country by age, there are far more 18-year-olds committing violent crimes than 80-year-olds. Generally speaking, the yeah, let's say 18 to 34 is really the, the prime uh, age for committing violent crimes. And you could even say it skews a little bit younger. Let's say 18 to 24. But still, as Judge Richardson points out, even though a majority of violent crime may be committed by young Americans... That's a very different thing than saying a majority of young Americans commit violent crimes, right? So it, it very well could be, let's say that 20, 30, 40% of violent crime committed by individuals under the age of 25. We're still talking about less than 1% of Americans under the age of 25 who are actually committing these violent crimes. And so this prohibition on 18, 19, and 20-year-olds being able to lawfully purchase a handgun has far more impact on law-abiding citizens than it does on violent criminals themselves. If you're 19 years old, you not only can vote, you can be told that you're going to carry a gun in defense of this country. You can get drafted. You can also voluntarily join the military. You can get married you can sign legal contracts. You can do all kinds of things that adults can do. But you can't purchase a handgun, at least not from a retailer. In fact, 19-year-old Natalia Marshall, who is one of the plaintiffs in this case, Judge Richardson writes she had good reason to seek protection. She had been forced to obtain a protective order against her abusive ex-boyfriend, who after that order was issued had been arrested for unlawful possession of a firearm and controlled substances. He was released on bail, but he never came to court, which led to the issuance of a warrant for his arrest. Along with the threat from her ex-boyfriend, Marshall works as an equestrian trainer, often finding herself in remote rural areas where she interacts with unfamiliar people. Having grown up training with guns, she believes that a handgun's ease of carrying, training, and use makes it the most effective tool for her protection from these and other risks. But because Marshall was 18... When she tried to buy a handgun, a federal law prevented her from buying from a licensed dealer who would perform a background check to verify that she was not a felon or other prohibited person. She preferred using a licensed dealer because they tend to have a wider supply, a good reputation, and a guarantee that the guns have not been used, stolen, or tampered with. Now she's 19, and she's unable to buy a handgun from a federally licensed dealer for self-defense. So what would gun control activists tell Natalia Marshall. Well, we know what they'd tell her. Oh, Natalia, you're better off without a gun anyway. You're 720% more likely to shoot yourself than you are your abusive ex-boyfriend if you get a gun. We know better than you, Natalia, how to protect yourself. And we are telling you that you can't and shouldn't protect yourself with a gun. That's what they'd say. Now, Natalia Marshall might tell the Democrats, hey, my body, my choice. How dare you tell me how best to protect myself? But unfortunately, that is the law of the land right now. But as Judge Richardson explained, you can see why 18, 19, and 20-year-olds not only may want to purchase a handgun for self-defense, but why they have the right to do so. So good news from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals today. And again, this case is called Hirschfeld versus BATFE. When we come back 
here on Tony Cast today. We're going to talk about the uh, BATFE, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. You know, it does not have a permanent director right now. Joe Biden has nominated gun control activist David Chipman. But as Politico reports today, Chipman's nomination and his confirmation still very much in doubt. Stick around. We'll tell you why right after this here on Tony Cast today. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. Cam Edwards sitting in with, well, you here on uh, the Tony Katz today program. Phone number to call 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. We've been talking about the uh, breaking news out of the Fourth Circuit, a big decision for uh, Second Amendment supporters uh, ruling that the federal government's ban on handgun sales to uh, those under the age of 21 violates the Second Amendment. This is a case called Hirschfeld versus BATFE. The other uh, BFD, I guess, with the ATF right now is the uh, nomination of uh, David Chipman. He is a former ATF agent turned gun control activist. He's been working with gun control groups for about the past decade, starting with uh, Michael Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which is now part of uh, Every Town for Gun Safety. And then he went to work for Giffords, the uh, gun control group started by former Congressman Gabrielle Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly, uh, who's now the junior senator from Arizona. In fact, David Chipman is still drawing a paycheck from Giffords right now uh, as he is awaiting a vote in the Senate to become the permanent director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. We don't know when that vote is going to happen because apparently Democrats are still trying to find the 50 votes needed in order for Kamala Harris to cast the tie-breaking 51st vote to confirm David Chipman. Politico reporting today that Chipman's nomination is, quote, stuck in limbo in the Senate, reporting a handful of moderate Senate Democrats, most from red states, remain undecided on Biden's nomination of David Chipman to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms, and Explosives. With the GOP galvanized to turn Chipman's bid into a litmus test for Democrats' commitment to the Second Amendment, citing the nominee's past work for a prominent gun control group, actually more than one, that leaves Biden with a potential political problem that could hobble his messaging on both guns and crime. Now, again, this is Politico, so they're viewing everything through the political lens here. This is a problem of Joe Biden's own devising. If Joe Biden had not nominated a committed gun control activist to head up the agency overseeing our nation's gun laws, regulations, gun owners in the firearms industry, he wouldn't have this problem. If he had simply elected or or nominated somebody uh, who had broad bipartisan support, who had a background in law enforcement, who was not seen as a rabid anti-gunner, Biden easily could have gotten that person confirmed. But that's not what Joe Biden did. Joe Biden took a knee to his anti-gun allies and said, what do you want? And they said, we want David Chipman. He said, okay, let's do it. On Monday, political reports, at least four Democratic caucus members were publicly mum on whether they'd support Chipman. Senator Angus King, who is not a Democrat, he's an independent, but he caucuses with the Democrats. So a, a Democrat and everything but name only, I guess. I don't even know what that acronym would be. Senator Angus King said he hasn't made up his mind. Well, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said he was still, quote, working on it. Manchin said, I've spoken to him a few times, had a Zoom call with him, trying to get all the facts and figures on this stuff, his credentials. He added that Chipman's experience, quote, seemed to be exemplary, but that he's still considering, quote, everything else that people have concerns about. 
Yeah, look, there are some concerns, I think, with uh, Chipman's 25 years inside the ATF. First of all, if, as Joe Biden says, the ATF is an agency that is in dire need of reform, well, then I don't think you put a career ATF agent in charge of that agency. Because, I, you know, if somebody spent 25 years in the ATF, I, I don't think that they're a reformer. I think they're a careerist. But the big issue with David Chipman is not his time spent at the ATF. It's the 10 years after he left the ATF that is the real issue. Uh, not only what he has said, but what he has done in his roles at Mayors Against Illegal Guns and at Giffords, where he is a senior policy advisor, basically a lobbyist uh, for gun control. And David Chipman, you know, he, he actually was articulating the Joe Biden gun ban plan before Biden ever was. Back in 2018, David Chipman said, we need to be regulating these AR-15s like they're machine guns. We need to put them under the National Firearms Act. We need to require every gun owner who owns one of these items to register their rifle, pay a $200 tax stamp, or, or else become a federal felon. Because that's what happens if you try to include AR-15s under the National Firearms Act. You also, by the way, would either have to do an end run around Congress and redefine semi-automatic firearms as machine guns, or you'd have to convince a majority of the House and 60 members of the Senate to go along with that. Well, that's not going to happen. But there are efforts right now in the Biden administration to try to impose a backdoor gun ban without a vote of Congress. They're not going after AR-15 rifles right now. They're going after AR-style pistols. There's a public rule, or a rule that's been proposed, public comment is now open, that would, in essence, redefine any AR-style pistol with a stabilizing brace attached as a short-barreled rifle, which is covered under the National Firearms Act. Now, it's estimated that there could be as, as few as 4 million, maybe as many as 40 million Americans who could run afoul of this regulation if it goes through. But I believe that this is the, the, the test effort to see if they can actually impose a gun ban, not through a vote of Congress, but through rewording and reinterpreting existing regulations. And if they can do this with AR-style pistols, they can certainly do it with AR-15 rifles and other semi-automatic rifles. And that exactly is what David Chipman uh, has called for. For years, that's what David Chipman has wanted to do. So I'm, I'm glad that Joe Manchin is still considering, quote, everything else that people have concerns about. I wish that he would articulate those concerns because gun owners certainly have no problem doing that. All right, we've got more to talk about with the uh, David Chipman nomination and why it might be in some trouble, which is good news for gun owners. We'll do that on the uh, flip side of this break. Stick around. We've got much more Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. Cam Edwards in for Mr. Katz on this uh, Tuesday. Glad to be with you. We've been talking about the nomination of David Chipman as the permanent director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. This is a key component of uh, Joe Biden's strategy when it comes to enacting his gun control agenda because he's stymied right now in Congress. 
can't get, uh, you know, even a, a universal background check bill through the Senate, much less his ban on AR-15s and uh, so-called high-capacity magazines. So what he can't do legislatively, he wants to try to do through executive actions and through uh, the regulatory powers of the ATF. And it would be much easier to do that if you had a committed gun control activist like David Chipman in charge of the agency. The problem for Biden right now is that there are some red state Democrats who remain uncommitted to supporting David Chipman. Uh, we just talked about uh, Angus King, independent from uh, Maine, who says he still hasn't made up his mind. Senator Joe Manchin says he's still, quote, working on it. Uh, meanwhile, John Tester uh, of Montana was also asked about uh, Chipman's nomination. He said that he is, quote, still analyzing the uh, nomination, but also told Politico that he's not, quote, feeling the urgency because I don't know when he's scheduled to get a vote, which is interesting. Senator Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, she's actually up for re-election next year. She, too, says she hasn't made uh, up her mind, but says she's planning to meet with Chipman before she does. Now, every state that I just mentioned, Maine, West Virginia, Montana, New Hampshire, not only do they have Democrat senators, but they also have really strong Second Amendment protections in place. In fact, every one of those states is constitutional carry. If you can legally own a firearm, you can legally carry a firearm. These are very Second Amendment friendly places. And most of these senators have run in the past at least paying lip service to the Second Amendment rights of voters there. They, they have not run the typical Democrat campaign of we're coming to take your guns away, right? It's, it's more of the, uh, I support your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, but I believe that there are a few common sense steps that we could all agree on to make this country safer. They do still support gun control. They just don't support all of the gun control items uh, handed down by uh, anti-gun activists. And so now you've got at least four Democrats who are publicly not yet committed one way or the other. Now, none of them have actually come out and said, no, I'm not voting for David Chipman. So gun owners need to continue to keep up this pressure. And it sounds like they are actually keeping up the pressure. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. actually wading into this. He is uh, uh, targeting gun owners in places like Montana and West Virginia, uh, urging gun owners to continue contacting Senator Manchin's office, Senator Tester's office, and opposing the nomination of David Chipman. Gun control activists, meanwhile, they're going to go to the mat on this one. This is a huge component of their strategy for the next four years. And if they don't have a committed ally like David Chipman in charge of the ATF, they're going to have to rethink a lot of their plans to go after uh, gun owners and the firearms that we own. As Politico notes, so far this year, Biden has only seen one of his appointments fail in the Senate. Thanks to bipartisan opposition, Neera Tanden was nominated to become the uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget. And her nomination was actually pulled because of mean tweets Things that she had said about senators, both Republicans and Democrats. I, I would argue that David Chipman uh, hasn't just said mean things 
Although he said some pretty mean things about gun owners. But that he's got some truly awful ideas here that would uh, put gun owners and certainly the firearms industry uh, in the crosshairs of the anti-gun movement. Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin was asked when uh, Chipman might get that floor vote in the Senate. And he said, well, Chuck's got to make that decision, meaning Chuck Schumer. Durbin says he's planning to sit down with a handful of fellow Democrats soon to discuss Chipman's nomination. He says, we're talking to moderate Democrats, and the response is good, but we aren't assuming anything. We'll keep working. Well, here's the thing. If the votes were there right now, then it already would have taken place, or at least the vote would have been scheduled. If Chuck Schumer felt confident about what Joe Manchin, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, Angus King would, would do, he would have scheduled that vote. The fact that uh, that vote has not been scheduled tells me that Chipman's nomination is in some doubt. And remember, we don't need all four of those Democrats to say no. But we need at least one of them to say no. We also need Republicans to stand firm in their opposition to David Chipman's nomination. And for the most part, I think we're there. The... Um, the, the, the two Republican senators that I'm a little concerned about right now uh, are Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who you know famously worked with Joe Manchin on a background check bill in 2013 that did not get the support of 60 senators, and uh, Rob Portman from Ohio, who is retiring and who has said that uh, he is inclined. He hasn't come out and said he's voting for Chipman. But he has said that he is inclined to give deference to the president's nominees. Which is one of those, you know, nods to bipartisanship that I think is completely unwarranted in this case. As I said earlier, if Joe Biden had nominated a career ATF official who didn't then turn around and go to work for a gun control group for 10 years, I don't think that that nomination would would be in trouble. If Joe Biden had nominated somebody who was nonpartisan or at least did not have a, a background in advocating for turning the most commonly sold rifle into America in America today uh, into a criminal offense, I don't think that Biden would be having the trouble that he's having with Chippen right now. There's there are good reasons to oppose David Chipman. Very good reasons. But I am a little concerned about Portman. I'm a little concerned about Toomey. Uh, I, I tell you, my nightmare scenario is uh, Joe Manchin ends up voting no on David Chipman and Pat Toomey ends up voting yes. And Manchin, uh, you know, convinces Toomey to take one for the team. Uh, help me save my political skin. Because Pat Toomey's not running for re-election either. He, he's done. Next year, he's out of office. And given the fact that, uh, you know, he and Manchin have this close working relationship, there, there is, uh, yeah, there is a part of me that, that is very concerned that Manchin will convince Pat Toomey, hey, okay, let me vote no so that I can, you know, keep my bona fides uh, in, in good uh, shape here with my uh, voters and constituents back home in West Virginia. And you vote yes for him since you're leaving and you don't have to worry about what Republicans are going to do. That, that thought actually keeps me up at night a little bit. 
However, the fact that we haven't seen a vote yet, it makes me feel a little bit better about that possibility not coming to pass. Because if that were how this was going to play out, I think Manchin would probably have been able to convince Toomey already to take that step. And we probably would have seen a vote scheduled. Uh, Political reports, the impasse on Chipman's nomination comes as the White House makes a major push on gun violence prevention. Amid a recent crime increase in major cities, Biden met with Attorney General Mary Garland, state and local officials, and a violence intervention expert on Monday as they discussed the president's strategy to encourage cities to spend unused COVID relief funds to strengthen police departments and combat gun violence, cracking down on, quote, illegal firearms. Part of the ATF's mandate is another centerpiece of the Biden strategy. Biden says, we've been at this a long time, long time. Most of my career has been on this issue. Yeah, and, and you know, Joe, I don't think he have much to show for it, quite honestly. You know, he said most of his career has been spent on this issue. Well, the 94 crime bill Democrats don't like because they say it led to over-policing. Republicans don't like the 94 crime bill because even though it added to the number of police officers in this country, it also imposed a 10-year ban on so-called assault weapons, which did nothing to reduce violent crime. So, yeah, Biden is, you know, for somebody who spent much of his career on one issue, it's kind of pathetic that he doesn't have much to show for it. And uh, it also tells me that his political instincts on this issue, not the greatest. And that would include the nomination of uh, David Chipman, the nomination that appears to be at least in some uh, jeopardy right now, which, again, very good news for gun owners. But uh, if you know gun owners and Second Amendment supporters in the states of West Virginia, Arizona, Montana, New Hampshire, I would add uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania as well. Make sure that you are encouraging them to remain in contact with their senators and urging them to oppose the nomination of David Chipman. Personally, I'd like to see the ATF scrapped entirely, but I don't think that's going to happen under the Biden administration. Didn't happen under the Trump administration, so I doubt it's going to happen under the Biden administration. But we should at least have an ATF director that is not a a willing tool of the gun control lobby. Uh, Just as the left would have rightfully objected to Donald Trump putting Wayne LaPierre in charge of the ATF, there are very good reasons why a gun control activist like David Chipman should not be in charge of that agency either. All right, stick around. We've got more news to come here on Tony Katz today. We'll be back with much more coming up right after this. I don't know where the time is going here, but uh, holy moly, we're almost out of uh, hour two here on Tony Cassidy. Thankfully, we do have time to talk about the uh, latest problem for California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, already facing a recall election and a California judge on Monday declaring that uh, Judge uh, or that uh, Governor Newsom's request to have his party affiliation listed on the upcoming recall election ballot is denied. Uh, Gavin Newsom ended up suing the Democratic Secretary of State last month because he screwed up. Well, he says it was his election attorney. Uh, He was supposed to mark his party affiliation in February of last year, pursuant to the state's recall election law. But the governor says that, quote, due to an inadvertent but good faith mistake on the part of his election attorney, the governor timely filed his answer, but did not include his party preference election. 
So in other words, he's going to be listed on this recall, but he's not going to be listed as a Democrat. And in California, you know, which is dominated by Democrats, you kind of want that that party affiliation there, right? The party stalwarts are going to be more likely to vote for you. Well, Sacramento Superior Court Judge James Argulis wrote Monday that he, quote, circumstances do not justify excuse from the deadline. He said it's clear from both the text and the legislative history that the law in question does not consider information about the elected officer's party affiliation so vital to voters that it must be included on the ballot. So uh, when this recall election is held, Gavin Newsom's name is going to be on the ballot, but it is not going to say Democrat afterwards. Uh, As CNN reports, the ruling brings a new wrinkle to Newsom's efforts to stay in office as he faces the second election in state history to recall a sitting governor. State officials confirmed last month that a recall election would proceed after just 43 people withdrew their signatures from petitions to recall the governor during a 30-day window required by state law. The recall election is scheduled for September 14th. Um, Critics of Newsom had met the state's threshold for a recall election back in April. Newsom and his team, CNN reports, have framed the recall as an effort by supporters of former President Donald Trump and right-wing extremists to wrest control of the government from progressives. He says, that, quote, it is what it is. This is a Republican recall. An RNC-backed Republican recall of white supremacists, anti-Semites, and people who are opposed to immigration and immigrants is an accurate assessment of who's behind this recall. What? I, boy, this is terrestrial radio, so I can't really say what I want to say about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom. But uh, you had, what, 1.7 million residents in California sign on to this law or sign on to this recall effort? Does Governor Newsom really believe that there are millions? Well, of course he does. Because he believes that any Republican is a white supremacist, anti-Semite, people who are opposed to immigration and... Uh, immigrants themselves i i gotta tell you i think newsom's statements are going to do him more harm than this uh judge's decision but the one saving grace for newsom is the fact that this is still california and california is so dominated by leftist politics that i I know I'm supposed to say that Newsom's going to go down. I know that's what Republicans want to hear. Um, honestly, though, I think Newsom stands a really good chance of of winning this recall election. Yeah, he's not losing. I, I mean, I just don't see him losing. And the fact that there are like 90 candidates to replace Newsom, there are 90 people who are running for governor. I think that that also uh, cuts into the support for the recall. If there were one or two clear candidates who who voters could start to think about in terms of, okay, so we replace Newsom and we uh, get rid of him and we put candidate A or B in there, then I think you could see people coalesce around the idea of the recall election, of a recall and replacement election. Uh, but you're not seeing that. I mean, again, if you've got 90 people who are running for governor, it's just, I think it's going to overwhelm a lot of California voters. And Republicans, I know, are going to say no uh, to Gavin Newsom. I don't know that Republicans have coalesced around a, uh, a single candidate or even, even two or three candidates. You know, obviously the, uh, the most high-profile candidate, Caitlyn Jenner, 
but I, 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 I don't see Caitlyn Jenner getting a ton of votes, honestly. Uh, I don't think she's actually run a, a campaign that is really designed to uh, reach voters where they are. It's a vanity campaign from what I've seen. So, you know, despite the uh, legal setback <laughs> for Gavin Newsom, thanks to a, a Superior Court judge in California, if, if I were the governor, I wouldn't be losing too much sleep uh, over the prospect of being ousted. I, I, I think California is such a, a Democrat stronghold uh, that you can quite literally uh, run the economy into the ground, keep kids locked out of schools, declare uh, businesses to be non-essential, forcing them to close forevermore. And yeah, you can still stay in office. Democrats aren't going to mind that too much. All right, stick around. Hour two of Tony Katz. Well, it's done and gone, but to hour three straight ahead. We'll be back with more Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Clear. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. Cam Edwards in for Mr. Katz. Thank you so much for being so welcoming uh, yesterday and today. It is great to be here. Phone numbers to call 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. So on yesterday's program, we were talking about the, uh, the, the huge protests in Cuba. And I don't think I even realized when we were discussing it just how widespread these protests were. This wasn't just in Havana or in Santiago, in, in 45 different cities across Cuba, you had people taking to the streets over the weekend uh, and they were shouting freedom. They, they weren't shouting, we want food. They weren't shouting, we want vaccines. They were shouting, we want freedom. Uh, they're not shouting much today because the uh, clampdown is underway in Cuba. And the Associated Press reporting that uh, one of the big tools for the uh, communist regime there in Cuba involves cutting off access to the Internet. Uh, As of yesterday, Cuban authorities were blocking Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Telegram, according to the director of NetBlocks, which is a London-based Internet monitoring firm, Alp Toker says this does seem to be a response to social media-fueled protest. Now, interestingly enough, Twitter wasn't cut off by the Cuban regime, though Toker said that Cuba could curtail uh, access to Twitter if it wanted to. Uh, Toker said the recent easing of access by Cuban authorities to the Internet has increased social media activity, but the level of censorship has also risen. Not only, he says, does the cutoff block out external voices, but it also cuts off the internal voice of the population who've wanted to speak out. You know, and this, again, is a a common attribute of communist regimes and of authoritarian regimes. Uh, As I mentioned yesterday on the program, I have a whole genre of, of books in my collection of defectors from communist countries who escape to freedom and then they write about life in this closed society. There really is no corresponding genre of Americans who defected from the United States uh, and ended up in the Soviet Union or communist China. Because you don't necessarily have to defect. If you want to leave this country, you just leave, right? Nobody's keeping you here. In communist countries, immigration is highly restricted. 
both the uh, immigration into the country, of which there is frankly very little demand, uh, and then the outflow of immigrants to other nations. And the reason why these communist countries have to keep those restrictions in place is because, well, if they didn't, there wouldn't be anybody left. Everybody would flee. Uh, Internet access in Cuba has been expensive and relatively rare until recently. So this hasn't been much of an issue in Cuba because the average Cuban comrade uh, or even non-party member, and don't forget that the vast majority of Cubans, just like the vast majority of Chinese, are not actually members of the Communist Party. You're not allowed to be a member of the Communist Party. Now, it's the only party that's allowed to participate in elections, uh, but but even though that's the, the only party, not every uh, resident or every uh, citizen is allowed to be a member of the ruling party. They have to rule over somebody after all. So the average Cuban has not had reliable Internet access. They've not really been able to access social media until recently. Uh, until about 2008, the country was, quote, basically offline. According to Ted Hinken, who's a Latin America expert at Baruch College at the City University of New York, he said the biggest change came in December of 2018 when Cubans got access to mobile Internet for the first time via data plans that they had to purchase from the state monopoly. Yeah, because, again, there's there's one telecommunications company in Cuba and it's owned by the state. Uh, these days, more than half of all Cubans have Internet access, but what they have access to is entirely contingent, again, on what the Cuban government wants to allow them to see. And if the uh, Cuban people are now using the social media uh, platforms to, to try to organize, then the Cuban government can shut off access to those platforms, denying them the ability to do so. We uh, have also seen more physical forms of repression in Cuba in the last 24, 48 hours. The state security forces uh, arresting dozens of dissidents in Cuba. There were some brief protests on the street yesterday. The security forces quickly moved in, uh, rounded up those who were speaking out, and God knows where they are today. Meanwhile, in Miami, you have Cuban-Americans who are putting together basically a flotilla to try to get to Cuba and deliver relief supplies to Cuban uh, 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 citizens who are without food, are without medicine. Uh, Rear Admiral Eric Jones issued a warning statement on Monday night as uh, this flotilla started to gain steam, no pun intended, uh, basically telling them, don't do this. If, if, if you try to get to Cuba, um, that's unsafe and illegal, according to a Rear Admiral Eric Jones. But Cuban social media personalities in Miami posting on Monday that they would make the 10-hour boat ride to Cuba to show support after those protests broke out. The influencer said, by the way, that they would not only bring aid, but that they would bring guns to the Cuban people and urge people in Miami to offer up their boats According to the Associated Press, one group gathered Monday night at Pelican Harbor Marina near Miami's North Bay Village. People brought cases of bottled water, flashlights, boxes of Chef Boyardee pasta. Dennis Suayero is one of the organizers. So we're taking water, food, medicine, whatever we can take to Cuba, whatever we can take to help is good. 
But early on Tuesday, organizer Santiago Rivera's Instagram had a uh, post saying that the Coast Guard had stopped his group from crossing the straits because of, quote, problems with firearms. And he promised that they would try again to leave Wednesday morning, quote, with the permission of the authorities of this country. But the Coast Guard statement issued by the Rear Admiral suggests that uh, such permission would not be forthcoming, noting that the voyage is, quote, dangerous and unforgiving, with nearly 20 Cubans dying while trying to cross in recent weeks. It said the Coast Guard is working with state, local, and federal partners to monitor, quote, unpermitted vessel departures from Florida to Cuba. Santiago Rivera on Instagram, thanking people for supporting the mission, said that Cubans are determining their destiny and losing their fear. He said, well, this isn't politics. This is brotherhood. This is humanity and common sense. I'm proud to be Cuban for my land. I give my life. You know, if we had perhaps a uh, more forceful statement from uh, uh, President Biden, then maybe you wouldn't see these Cuban Americans uh, try to do this for themselves. But I don't think Biden wants to wade into this. You know, the, the first reaction from the Biden administration to these protests on Sunday was a very milquetoast response from a, uh, a State Department employee. Basically saying, uh, you know, they're, they're protesting for food and for vaccines, and we, uh, we wish them all the best. And then Monday, Biden came out with a better statement, noting that these protests were, in fact, a response to decades of authoritarian rule on the part of the communist regime in Cuba. And, you know, he said, look, we stand with the, uh, the Cuban people, and it's, it's all the nice things. But this is, this is, I, I think, a, uh, maybe a weakness within U.S. policy. And it goes beyond the Biden administration. I mean, it goes back even really to the early days of the Cold War. There's been this tension in the United States. We want to encourage people to push back against communism when they live under this type of authoritarianism. But we don't necessarily do much to help them. Uh, I've got a book on my bookshelf at home from 1957 or 58, right after the Hungarian uprising. And, you know, this was fairly early on in the Cold War. And the people of Hungary really truly believed that if they did rise up against the Soviet power, that the United States would respond with more than words, with, with, with material help, including weapons, but also including food and medicine. And the U.S. didn't do that. Uh, you know, the, the reaction at that point from the Eisenhower administration was, yeah, this is great, but, you know, if, if we actually physically aid uh, uh, these individuals then we're going to be risking the risk of escalation with the Soviet Union, and who knows where that's going to lead. So while we support them in theory, uh, that's basically where our support ends. And, and that has largely been the United States' attitude towards uprisings against uh, a, a communist regimes ever since. We, we say nice things, but ultimately, you're on your own. Well... 
it's hard to tell that to people who live here in the United States, whose family escaped Cuba 50 or 60 years ago, or maybe who have even arrived here more recently. Refugees who navigated those dangerous waters between Cuba's northern coast and the Florida Keys. And to tell them, look, we, we stand in solidarity, in spirit, but um, that's where our efforts stop, is with the words. There's no surprise to me that you've got Cuban-Americans who say, not good enough. We, we need a more kinetic response to these people who are literally risking their lives to demand freedom, to demand basic rights that they are not receiving under Cuban law. I, I, you know, there is no easy answer. I wish that there was. But I don't see this administration taking a harder line on Cuba. And unfortunately, I don't see this administration taking a softer line on those Americans who, again, might try to uh, deliver goods and supplies and, yeah, maybe even guns and ammunition uh, to Cuban freedom fighters they're living under the, uh, the, the thumb of the communist authorities. All right, it is uh, 18 after the hour here on Tony Cast today. We do need to take a quick time out. We have much more to come, though, so stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. Cam Edwards in for Mr. Katz. You know, we've been talking about authoritarian regimes like the uh, one in Cuba. There's one that's, uh, let's call it semi-authoritarian. I don't want to compare a parent-teacher association to a, a an actual, you know, communist government, but uh, it's close. You know, the, the school board wars uh, erupting around the country are fascinating to me because this really is, I, I think, a matter of parents who are fed up with what's going on in their schools they're speaking up they're speaking out in a way that they have not done in the past they are engaged they are energized which we've heard from educators for years that's what they want right we want parents to pay attention we want them to show up and join the pta we want them at our school board meetings and then when parents do now all of a sudden these educators are like no we want them to stay home we don't like what they're saying they're attacking us they don't like what we're doing and uh these parents are awful people so yeah just go away so in the northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. suburb of Fairfax County, there is a, uh, a school for basically the gifted and talented kids, right? It's called the uh, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. Very, very difficult to get into this school. You've got to have all kinds of uh, not only great grades, but you've got to have the extracurricular activities. And there have been complaints uh, in years past that Basically, there are too many Asian kids taking up spaces uh, in the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. And so a group of left-leaning parents uh, in the name of equity decided that they were going to try to change the rules to get into this school, which caused a huge debate to erupt to the point that several existing members of the school board uh, or the Parent Teacher Association uh, for this high school ended up getting voted out. Uh, and you basically had an insurgent campaign of parents who said, listen, we don't like this far left ideology that's coming out of the uh, folks in charge here. Uh, we're going to take over. And they did so within the rules of the parent teacher organization. Right. And this is again, we're not talking school boards right now. We're talking the PTA. Well, what's fascinating to me is that now the the statewide Virginia Parent Teacher Association 
is wading into this debate in Northern Virginia, and they have reinstated these ousted board members. So the members of the Parent Teacher Association for this high school in Fairfax County, Virginia, got tossed in a, in a legitimate election. And now the state PTA is stepping in and saying, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. We're, we're putting these people back in place. I don't I, again, you know, I never thought I'd have to become an expert on how PTAs operate. So I didn't even realize that a state organization could actually do this. But but they're claiming the authority to do this. They're also uh, putting the Thomas Jefferson High School Parent Teacher Student Association on probation, they say. And they say that they could actually dissolve the organization entirely. Uh, during the probationary period, the Virginia PTA wants this local Parent Teacher Student Association uh, not to fill a position or remove any board members without the state PTA's approval. Again, this seems like the exact opposite reaction that the Democrats should be taking here if they simply want parents to quit paying attention to what's going on in their schools by going back and saying, okay, yeah, what you just did, this vote that you just held, we're not going to allow that to happen. So these board members that you just ousted, we're going to put them back. And if you don't like it, then we can revoke your charter. And all of the money, by the way, that you've raised that's in your bank accounts that's supposed to be going to benefit these students and the teachers for this high school, we can seize that money. It's about $88,000. And the state PTA organization is actually saying, we're going to take your cash unless you do what we say. Now, again, I'm not an attorney, and I've never weighed into the legal issues surrounding PTAs, but... Um, this seems designed, well, not designed. This seems like it's going to have the opposite of its intended effect. This, if you've got parents who are so invested right now in what's going on with their kid's school, that they are showing up, that they're tossing out school board members, that they're trying to get the school back on track, and all of a sudden the state organization steps in and says, no, we're not going to allow you to, to do that. What do you think is going to happen in response? You think these parents are going to roll over and give up? Or do you think these parents are going to double down on their activism? I got to tell you, I mean, what we're seeing in the public schools right now, my county Republican committee has a meeting a week from today. And one of the things on their agenda is actually to recruit candidates for our upcoming school board elections. I have never thought about running for school board in my life. Don't necessarily have a lot of free time. A lot of things that I would rather do, but I'm going to talk with, with my local Republican uh, campaign committee because if it's happening, it's happening, well, it's happening everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a, you know, deep blue school district or a rural red school district. We are seeing these attempts to prevent parents from being involved in their kids' education on a daily basis right now. And it's time to say enough's enough. All right, it's also time to say we'll be right back with more right after this here on Tony Katz Today. Welcome back to Tony Katz Today. Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com, filling in for Tony Katz. I'm glad that you've joined us on the program. All right, so this is interesting. I'm not quite sure what to make of this. Fox reporting that Liz Cheney, 
set a second straight quarterly fundraising record. Now, there have been some polls of Wyoming voters showing that um, basically roadkill is, is more popular than uh, Liz Cheney, the uh, sitting congresswoman from Wyoming. But uh, her 2022 reelection campaign, according to Fox, brought in almost $1.9 million in the second quarter of fundraising. That's an increase from the record-setting $1.5 million that Cheney brought in during the first quarter of this year. Uh, Cheney for Wyoming sharing the fundraising figures with Fox News on Tuesday morning. Fox reporting the nearly $3.5 million that uh, Wyoming's three-term at-large member of the House has raised so far surpasses the $3 million that Cheney brought in during the entire 2020 cycle for her successful re-election campaign. Fox reports that the campaign also highlighted that the Congresswoman has $2.85 million in cash on hand as of the end of June, which is double the $1.43 million that she had in her campaign coffers three months ago. Uh, as Fox points out, the money in the bank gives Cheney a significant fundraising advantage over any of the primary challengers seeking to oust her in 2022. Yeah, the bulk of that money is not going to be spent by the Cheney for Congress campaign in the general election. It's going to be spent in the primary election because Liz Cheney is going to face a primary uh, from, I, I think there are already at least two candidates who have uh, publicly announced that they will be uh, challenging Cheney for the Republican nomination in Wyoming next year. So one of the things that I really want to know is where this money is coming from. And that, unfortunately, is something that uh, Fox News does not report. Uh, Cheney political advisor Kevin Seifert in a statement to Fox News saying that Liz Cheney stand up for the Constitution, for conservative values, for the rule of law. Uh, as these fundraising numbers make clear, she has robust support in this fight. Yeah, I don't know that that's actually what that signals. What that signals is that Liz Cheney has some deep-pocketed donors. But are they actual Wyoming voters? Or are, are, are these campaign contributions coming from places like, mm, I don't know, inside the Beltway, Northern Virginia? Fox reports that uh, Cheney outraised Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, who seated, uh, succeeded her as House Republican Conference Chair. Uh, Stefanik raised nearly $1.5 million over the last three months. Again, Cheney almost $1.9 million uh, over the uh, last three months. And by the way, I was wrong. It's not two declared primary opponents for Liz Cheney. There are actually seven uh, candidates who have announced that they are challenging Liz Cheney for the Republican nomination next year. Uh, among them... Uh, Wyoming State Representative Chuck Gray, uh, Attorney Darren Smith, State Senator uh, Anthony Bouchard of Wyoming, who says that uh, he has raised $500,000 since launching his campaign earlier this year. Uh, all of the uh, uh, challengers, uh, obviously much more pro-Trump than uh, Liz Cheney is. So it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, the never-Trump wing of the Republican Party, if they're even part of the Republican Party these days, uh, are, are throwing money Liz Cheney's way. And I have no doubt that there is a, a lot of money from that group. I mean, look how much money the, the uh, uh, not the Lincoln Brigade, but the Lincoln Project, that's, that's what they're called. The, uh, the so-called Never Trump Republicans who have just basically decided to uh, uh, endorse every Democrat running for office. You know, they've got a lot of cash too. They also haven't been really effective at doing anything other than 
making themselves a lot of money, right? Oh, and covering up for uh, sexual harassment scandals involving board members. Yeah. But in terms of actually making a difference, I don't think they've really done anything. So I'm, I'm not convinced that this uh, great fundraising total for Liz Cheney actually means a whole lot other than she will have some cash on hand to spend in her reelection bid. But if that money is coming from, again, outside of the state of Wyoming, what good does it do, Liz Cheney? Uh, let's see. This is the New York Times. This is from June 20th. Liz Cheney's lonely stand. Uh, what voters in Wyoming say about uh, Liz Cheney? Let's see if we can find some actual poll numbers here. Dee, 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 dee. I, nah, if there are any poll numbers in this story, and the New York Times is burying those numbers. All right, so we'll skip the New York Times. Uh, let's see. This is from uh, Newsweek. Liz Cheney is nearly three times as popular among Democrats than GOP voters. This is from May. 15% of Republican and Republican-leaning voters view Cheney favorably. 42% of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters view her favorably. But again, that's nationwide. That's, that's not a poll of Wyoming voters. Um, all right. Poll showing Cheney support down in Wyoming. That's from January. That's, that's too old. Yeah, I just, I, I don't, the fact that we haven't actually seen a lot of polling from Wyoming, I think, is also indicative uh, of the fact that, uh, you know, Liz Cheney's in some, some real trouble uh, there in Wyoming. Uh, okay, here's a, here's a poll from the Federalist, or at least they're writing about a poll. This is from early May, so at least that's a little more recent. According to a new poll from Club for Growth, uh, Cheney's support is underwater at home as Republicans in Washington demand a second referendum to kick the Wyoming lawmaker from her number three position in leadership, which ultimately happened. Uh, 52%, again, this is as of May, 52% of likely Republican primary voters said that they would vote against Cheney next year, no matter the opponent. Only 14% said that they would continue to support her. Her unfavorables in Wyoming, this is a poll of 415 likely voters, her favorables as of April 21st through 22nd, 29% favorable, 65% unfavorable. And again, among Wyoming voters. Now, I would argue that that is going to have far more impact on Liz Cheney's re-election campaign than getting millions of dollars in donations from non-Wyoming residents. As a matter of fact, if a, the bulk of that money coming into Cheney's campaign is coming from outside of the state, well, then her primary opponents are going to be able to, uh, to raise that as an issue. Do you want these out-of-state interests coming in and telling you who to vote for? I mean, that's a real easy attack on Liz Cheney there. So... You know, the numbers are worth noting, but I don't know that they actually mean much other than the fact that the uh, anti-Trump uh, Republicans apparently are doing pretty well uh, in this economy. 
and they've got some money to throw around here on a uh, candidate who I think is uh, very likely to lose her re-election bid next November. I don't think there's a chance that a Democrat gets that seat, but I also think the odds are long that uh, Liz Cheney keeps that seat in Congress. All right, it is uh, 44 after the hour. Why don't we take a quick timeout? We do have more of Tony Katz today coming up. So stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. It's Tony Cast today. 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. 833. Uh, I can't figure out the actual numbers here. Oh, you know what it is? There it is. 833-468-8669. That's what it is. Cam Edwards in for Tony this afternoon and glad to be behind the microphone. The uh, nominations for the 73rd Annual Primetime Emmy Awards were announced today. Uh, and I realized that uh, I don't watch a lot of TV because I haven't heard of most of these shows now to be fair i live in a rural area and uh we've had really crummy internet basically since the uh, the moment we moved in so streaming has never been an option for us until really about two months ago uh when we got a major internet upgrade and and are now able to catch up on like the last eight years of television so my wife and i have been binge watching all of the shows that we've missed uh, over the past decades since we moved to a farm so we're not we're not quite caught up on the current shows uh but uh, wandavision i've heard good things about we don't have disney plus i i refuse to give disney my money so so we don't have wandavision but uh paul bettany getting an emmy nod for uh outstanding lead actor uh in a limited series or tv movie for wandavision also a uh, hugh grant getting a nomination for the undoing couldn't tell you what that's about. Uh, Ewan McGregor getting uh, nominated for Halston. Now, I have I've seen the previews for that on Netflix, but I have no desire to watch uh, a movie about a fashion icon, given that I already am one. Uh, Lin Manuel Miranda getting a nomination for Hamilton. Leslie Odom Jr. getting a nomination for Hamilton, which I, again I believe is on Disney Plus. So I haven't seen it. My kids like the soundtrack. I, I know the story through American history, but uh, haven't actually watched. The, uh, the musical. Uh, outstanding lead actress, uh, Michelle Cole for I May Destroy You, which I believe was actually going to be the original name of Tony Katz today, but they, they decided to go with something a little more uh, positive and optimistic. Uh, Cynthia Erivo for Genius Aretha, which I'm assuming is about Aretha Franklin. Again, couldn't tell you what uh, platform that is on or what it's about. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen for WandaVision. Anna Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit, which I actually have seen. That's the first show that's been nominated that I've seen. I think I saw it. This was the chess movie or the chess miniseries, right? Uh, about a, a young chess prodigy in like the 1960s. That was actually pretty good. Uh, Kate Winslet nominated for Mayor of Easttown. Again, I've seen the previews. Haven't had any desire to watch it yet. Uh, outstanding lead actor in a comedy series, Anthony Anderson for Blackish. Uh, William H. Macy for Shameless. Michael Douglas for The Kaminsky Method. I've heard really good things about that show, actually, on Netflix. Uh, Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso. Kenan Thompson for Kenan. Uh, let's see. Outstanding reality competition series. You've got The Amazing Race. Nailed it, uh, which is the... I, I Obviously, my wife and I do watch that. It's on Netflix, and it's uh, basically... You put people who don't know how to bake in a banking competition show and hilarity ensues uh rupaul's drag race top chef the voice all getting uh, emmy nominations outstanding variety talk series 
Boy, so many conservatives in this uh, uh, category. It's amazing. Uh, last week tonight with John Oliver, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Conan, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. I mean, all five really rock-ribbed conservatives. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the Emmy nods for Outstanding Limited Series, WandaVision, Mayor of Easttown, I May Destroy You, The Underground Railroad, The Queen's Gambit, Outstanding Comedy Series, Blackish, Cobra Kai, which I didn't realize was supposed to be a comedy. I thought that was a reboot of The Karate Kid. Uh, Emily in Paris... Couldn't tell you what that's about. Hacks, The Flight Attendant, The Kaminsky Method, Pin 15, Ted Lasso, The Outstanding Drama Series getting nominations, uh, The Boys, Bridgerton, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Lovecraft Country, which I actually watched a couple weeks ago. Pretty good. Kind of strange. Uh, the Mandalorian and Pose. So there you go, your, uh, your Emmy nominations. I will probably get around to watching at least some of those shows by... I don't know, 2031, I guess, since I'm about uh, 10 years behind. First thing I did, well, actually, when we, uh, when we got our internet upgraded, we could start streaming video. I didn't watch new shows. I decided to go back and, and watch some shows that I never caught the first time around. Um, like The Sopranos. I never watched The Sopranos when it was on the air because we didn't know have HBO. I'm like, all right, well, now I'm going to watch The Sopranos. And I did. Binge watched it in about uh, six weeks. It was great. Watched uh, Boardwalk Empire after that. And then I just went down this rabbit hole of watching old TV. Because most of the new shows that are out there, a couple of things. A, most of them don't really interest me. But secondly, they all get canceled. After like one or two seasons. Netflix, HBO Max, Disney Plus. I mean, unless there's a runaway hit, you invest your, your time and your energy watching these shows and then they don't get renewed for a second season. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, intent on uh, sticking with the older stuff that I know actually has a beginning, a middle, and an end instead of, you know, finishing off on this cliffhanger because the producer and the director and the showrunner all thought that the season was going to get renewed and then the uh, series ended up getting canceled. So I don't know that I actually will end up watching most of these uh Shows that have been nominated for the Emmys. But, I, you know, I guess congratulations to the celebrities, who, uh, most of whom have utter contempt uh, for uh, Americans on the right side of the political aisle. I, I, I wish you all the best on your award show. I'm sure you'll look fantastic. And I'm pretty sure that fewer and fewer Americans will be tuning in to the uh, 73rd Emmys, which I think are going to be broadcast this September. You know, the ratings for these award shows have been just in the toilet uh, over the, really the past, you know, 10 years or so. I'm looking at the Emmys ratings for 2020. All-time TV ratings low (laughs) in 2020. 6.1 million U.S. viewers down from 2019's 6.9 million viewers. So if we're going to continue that trend then uh, I'm guessing the 2021 Emmys are going to be watched by, what would that be, roughly like 5.3 million Americans? Maybe even less than that by the uh, time Emmy season rolls around. And uh, I think, you know, in part, that's because we don't care about these celebrities. I mean, you know, this this is a participation trophy show for them. Uh, and if we really, really are invested in these celebrities, maybe we want to watch. We want to see what they're wearing. I've never really been into celebrities in that way, so it doesn't really uh, intrigue me. 
Yeah, it used to be maybe like the uh, the, the the song and dance numbers or the uh, the host would uh, compel me to watch for an hour or so. But these celebrity lectures have just gotten so bad uh, over the last few years that I, I honestly I couldn't tell you the last award show that I actually watched. Not the Oscars. I haven't watched the Oscars in at least a decade. Uh, Emmys, Tonys, Golden Globes. Do the MTV Music Awards still exist? I haven't watched that either. Uh, and apparently I'm not alone because the uh, ratings for these shows just continue to decline. Maybe if the uh, Texas Democrats are still looking for a good place to hide, they can uh, just go and appear in. 